San Antonio Spurs coach Greg Popovich is the longest tenured active coach in all of Major League Sports in general. Coach Pop has been with the Spurs since 1996, and yesterday he gave what may be his last pregame interview of his career. What did he choose to talk about? Hoops? No. The horrific gun violence that has plagued our country, and specifically the Nashville school shooting. You know, it's just, it's a myth. It's a joke. It's, it's just a game they play. I mean, that's freedom. Is it freedom for kids to go to school and try to socialize and try to learn and be scared to death that they might die that day? But Ted Cruz will fix him because he's going to double the number of cops in the schools. That's what he wants to do. Well, that'll create a great environment. Is that freedom? Or is it freedom to have a congressman who can make a postcard with all his family holding rifles, including an AR-15 or whatever? Is that cool? Is that like street cred for a Republican? Senator Marsha Blackburn, her, her comment after was after the massacre, my office is in contact with federal, state, and local officials, and we stand ready to assist. In what? They're dead. What are you going to assist with? Cleaning up their brains off the wall? Wiping the blood off the schoolroom floor? What are you going to assist with? The cowardice and the selfishness of the legislators who are so scared to death of being primaried and losing their job, losing their power, losing their salary. You'd like to get each one of them in a room, just one by one, and say, what's more important to you? If you could vote for some good gun safety laws that most of the public agrees to, would you do that if it saved one kid? Or is your job and your money so important to you that you would say, screw the kid? January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News Special Report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riot? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Professor Harvey K., my brother. There we go. He is a professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. Every Tuesday on this, your KC Morning Show. Y'all know what we do. Y'all know what we do. We take back America, reclaiming the radical history of these here United States. We got a progressive playbook. Harvey K, I hear it's pretty damn good. Maybe we should, you know, use that thing. Are we talking about the work we've done or the work that Bernie produced? See all the above? Okay, see all of the above, yeah. <laughs> but without our voices, the radical left is hardly heard, I think. Oh, that's good. <laughs> it's been a wild busy honestly i think productive few weeks since we've last chatted we've had our friend marianne williamson who we've had on this show together running for president how about that yeah well i was involved a bit with that i won't go into the details 
I've stayed in close contact with my dear friend Nina Turner. I was speaking this past Saturday along with Alan Minsky, my friend and your friend, Absolutely. You know, the executive director of PDA. We were at the Wisconsin Grassroots Network Festival, they call it, also attended by John Nichols and a number of other people. John really roused everybody, just really got people going at the very end when you start getting tired. Talked about why Wisconsin is coming back for progressives. I am very encouraged. I love that you're still chatting with our friend, our dear friend, Nina Turner, who's been crushing it on CNN. Her daily show on the Young Turks, people should try to catch it unbossed. It's excellent. And I implore everyone that's listening right now, take a look at the platform and the policy proposals of Marianne Williamson. I don't care what you've heard. Yeah, go ahead, Harvey. Oh, no, absolutely. And I want to tell everyone, if they haven't heard me say it before, if you had asked me a year ago what I thought of Marianne Williamson, I would have said, I don't know. I don't know much about her. Okay. I hadn't paid much attention, you might say. And then she asked me to come on to her podcast, her YouTube podcast, and talk with her about Franklin Roosevelt. So I prepped for that event by reading her book, A Politics of Love, a title of a book that I would never have normally bought. I was really surprised at how stupid I was for not having paid attention to her before. I read that. We had a fabulous conversation. It's available on YouTube. And the first one is outstanding to my mind. For some reason, you have to prove your age to, to listen to it. I must have dropped the F-bomb in it somewhere. I don't, or maybe Marianne dropped the F-bomb. No, no. And then we did a follow-up live stream on what would FDR do about inflation, which is also good, but I particularly like that first conversation. I have a special affection for it. And then she said, you should read the earlier book I wrote, Healing the Soul of America. Now, that's a book I would never have bought given the title, but I read it also a very smart book. 20 years ago, it was published. So we became good friends and I've contributed what I could intellectually to the, helping her launch her campaign. And I can tell you that she will bring a voice into the democratic debate, and I hope he's willing to debate her, that we need to hear. It's a voice which will be reminiscent in some ways of Bernie's, but I do want to say, this is going to shock people, Bernie built a movement that didn't go where it should go ultimately. It's there, we know it's there, but it hasn't taken off in the way it should have. We'll get to why it hasn't in a moment when we talk about his new book. But Marianne actually, I think, has a firmer grasp. You're going to laugh, and Bernie, if you heard this, smack you, man. Marianne actually has a firmer grasp of the sense of American history that's missing over and over again from Bernie's own rhetoric and book writing. I'm just saying, that's my view. And I have said this, and I've said this to friends of mine, and I think Bernie would agree with me that Bernie always wanted and intended this to be bigger than him. I mean, it absolutely had to be. It had to be bigger than Bernie. It's a movement that he was trying to build. I mean, when I heard Marianne Williamson call for a 21st century economic bill of rights, I got actual goosebumps. I think that was one of the reasons that led her to me, actually, to, to talk. So I'm excited to see where Marianne takes the campaign and hopefully, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, we can get her back on the show and we can talk about now the presidential run. Yeah, you mean back on the show live, right? Absolutely live. 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 Absolutely. Live. Okay, so let's turn to the subject at hand. We're going to talk tonight about Bernie's new book written with the aid of my dear friend, John Nichols. It's okay to be angry about capitalism. The wealthiest 1% of our population has seen a 122% increase in their real income. We are taking on the corporate establishment. And a government which works for all of us, not just the 1%. 
Now, I'm going to lay out the basic elements in the book, okay? The first third of the book, I'd say, is really Bernie's experience in the campaign. There's references to 2015-16, but it's really about the 2019-20 campaign. And I'll just tell you right off the bat, and I hope you'll all pick this book up. If you read that first third of the book, it comes as a surprise. It's not exactly what you would expect in a book titled, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. Because by the time you finish it, you'll say, it's okay to be angry about the Democratic Party. <laughs> okay, you, you're going to want to say, shove it. And then you ask yourself, how could Bernie put up with the crap that they did to him and still stand alongside of Biden, campaign for Biden, as just as he did for Hillary Clinton? You know, you'd say, what is he, a glutton for punishment, that kind of thing? The only thing he doesn't include in that discussion of how they literally screwed him, yeah, they screwed him as far as I'm concerned, yeah. is that he doesn't mention how Elizabeth Warren knifed him in the back on that debate night, where she claimed he said, you can't run, you shouldn't run, women couldn't win, something like that. When everyone knows that he was actually holding back campaigning earlier, I guess it was 2015-16, thinking Elizabeth Warren might like to enter that race. And by the way, the Clinton people were scared. Can I, I'm going to say it, shitless. I know that they hated her, the Clinton people. And they were afraid she was going to enter that race. And thank goodness he didn't wait because Elizabeth Warren is not Bernie Sanders. And uh, I don't know to what extent she could have actually beaten Clinton, in fact. I mean, but, you know I'm what? no fan of Clinton, but... And you know what? I'm hearing the way you passionately just described basically just how much Bernie was upon if we're being yeah, honest really. if there's any criticism i have with bernie's book is that i could read that first third i could be done with that section and say Fuck it i'm done i'm i am so upset i don't even want to read the rest of it right and and, right. and the fact that he's bernie you want to keep reading but if it wasn't bernie if it was just another progressive saying how messed up the system is but here's what i have to tell you about you know that's actually for the promise of it all Think about how many people were lost because it's not Bernie. You know, if Bernie. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Of course I do. He talks about the fact that in a poll conducted by Reuters, Democratic and independent voters felt that Bernie Sanders would be the strongest Democratic contender in a head to head race with the president, meaning Trump. Unfortunately, our surging momentum rattled the establishment even more. It was clear they were preparing to throw everything they could against us. Now, listen to this. In the final debate before the February 29 primary in South Carolina, a southern state where Biden had strong support and where he prevailed with relative ease, I wanted to talk about taxing billionaires, ending student debt, and caring for the 87 million Americans who had no health insurance or were underinsured as the coronavirus pandemic began to take hold. My rivals had other ideas. Before the first round of questioning was done, Mike Bloomberg was claiming that Russian President Vladimir Putin wanted me, Sanders, as the nominee against Trump, so you'll lose to him. Former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who is a disaster, by the way, as Secretary of Transportation, said, if you think the last four years has been chaotic, divisive, toxic, exhausting, imagine spending the better part of 2020 with Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump. What kind of bullshit is that? The moderators egged them on, literally encouraging the other candidates to attack as unworkable the proposal I'd made for implementing Medicare for all, a system similar to those of other Western democracies. Now, let me just add, Bernie missed his opportunity. I've said this many a time before. When they set out to screw him on Medicare, he should have just called Franklin Roosevelt into the room and said, that's what the Republicans and the right-wingers said about Roosevelt 
in the 30s when he proposed Social Security. So I'm not going to put up with this with this kind of stuff because I'm a Roosevelt Democrat and he didn't do it. But nevertheless, they did screw him over and over again. The next part, that's when he then moves on. Once he's sort of made his case for them having screwed him, one asks, well, why would he then stick around? People don't quite appreciate Bernie rightly feared not just Trump, but the Republican authoritarian machine. Call it fascism or neo-fascism, call it whatever you want. The fact is that Bernie was afraid on the basis of what he had seen in the Trump presidency from Charlottesville on, the degree to which it was empowering fascists and Nazis to take to the streets. And basically, he was right in thinking that. Look what happened on January 6th. If I can just make an aside real quick. Please, in, no, in interject, your, please. It's the interjection of history that shows you that you're not alone in doing it, right? If you feel like you're doing this thing, you're screaming into the void by yourself, that is how you sink into cynicism. And then, of course, he then moves into that second part of the book where he reviews the state of America. It led me to tweet and tell other people, God, I just wish Bernie had, had been the candidate and had won the presidency because he got the issues right. You know... The liberal media and the Dems, the moderate establishment, the corporate Dems, they are praising Biden as the second coming of FDR. Even now, bullshit, bullshit. Have you noticed what they've started to do now, though, Harvey? And I think this is absolutely intentional. They've, they've started to make that pivot. Biden is not the FDR of it all. He's much more of the Clinton of it all. The labor narrative is why they wanted to do it, but as we've just seen with East Palestine and with the labor strike, I mean, he ain't he ain't really about the labor. Have you noticed that recently? No, I hadn't actually. That's interesting. Let's remind everyone. Last summer, Biden could have met with the railway bosses and said to them, "You have got to meet the demands of the railway workers. It's the humane democratic thing to do." And guess what? If you don't do it, I'm going to sign an executive order and I'm going to nationalize the railways and I will impose the conditions that would enable railway workers to live decent lives. And he didn't. And they waited months and the railway workers entertained the idea of a strike. No workers want to go out on a strike. Believe me, they just don't. And what does then Biden do? He calls on Congress basically to block any effort of labor protests by workers. And by the way, my understanding, I think I'm not wrong in saying that the so-called squad progressives voted for it too. I mean, what kind of lefties would do that to labor? So then, then you've got Buttigieg, okay, who not only fails to listen to anyone in favor of improving the airline situation, you had the Southwestern Airlines debacle. And then it turns out that you get this railway disaster in southeastern Ohio, which, by the way, was avoidable, not simply because Obama gave way in certain ways. Trump screwed the railway workers by lifting a certain regulation. They had two years in office and they didn't do anything to address what previously created the crisis. And then on top of that, Biden was out of the country, but Buttigieg didn't go anywhere near southeastern Ohio. He avoided it. And who showed up? Trump. Thinking about the Silicon Valley Bank, I think this is an argument to be made for nationalizing the banks, which we just don't want to talk about for reasons. Regardless of the policy that came out of it, think about how we got to that policy. Real rich folks got real nervous and made a bunch of noise. And within 72 hours, the national government came in and did a thing. If you or I did that, Harvey, we're left out of luck. And let me remind everyone, this was a consequence 
of Bill Clinton yes, signing the Graham-Rudman Act late yes. in his presidency, which basically killed the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933 that separated commercial banking, deposit account banking, basically, and investment banking, risk banking, because of his advisors like Robert Rubin and what's the other guy's name? The one who's still hanging around telling people what they ought to do. What's Larry his name? Larry Summers. Larry Summers. Thank you. Clinton is the one who signed that into law that literally this many years later is what we saw. This was a bank who was taking on huge risks at the same time, a hell of a lot of people's money and accounts. Now, the folks with accounts up to 250000 they were automatically covered by the Federal Deposit Insurance Company. But there were companies that placed their payroll monies into that bank that had to be bailed out or workers were not going to get paid. If I can, Harvey, because this just, it pisses me off. And I'm not an economist. I don't pretend to be. But if we're going to talk about SVB in particular, FDIC qualifies you for up to 250K, right? Well, right. 91% of what was in that bank was over that level. These are venture capitalists who were making a risk play that did not play out. And why are they doing this? Well, the bank is doing these speculative moves, putting money also into some of the startups in the bank, which is like the risk of moves. Also, you got to remember this as well. These folks, why are these people willing 91% of them to take the kind of risk to go outside of the 250? Well, think of all the sweetheart deals Silicon Valley Bank gave. I mean, some of these folks got zero percent. I mean, I'm I am speculating, but I don't think I'm far off here. Some of these uh -huh. folks, I'm sure, got zero percent mortgages on homes that are millions and millions of dollars, which in turn, folks, if you are putting this together, some of these rich folks got their homes, cars for free. For that's free. Interesting. That's interesting. That I don't know about, but oh, excuse me. I'm allergic to such talk. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everyone talks about, you know, what about the mom and pop of it all and the small business? Like all these bullshit reasons that the Larry Summers of the world for begging for a bailout. Again, I'm not saying it wasn't even the right move. I'm not saying it wasn't the correct thing to do. But what I'm saying is because a bunch of rich venture capitalists got on a group chat and all decided to make a run on the bank, it caused the federal government to hit pause for a second. Turns out in the weeks before all this debacle occurred, they were giving themselves huge bonuses. And, and everyone keeps framing this as this small regional bank. Yeah, small regional bank. That's a good one. It was one, the right? 16th biggest bank in the country. And by the way, and by the way, so it was the second largest bank failure in American history, I believe, at least in many, 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 many years. And here's the other thing. They lobbied and got Republican and Democratic senators yep. to lift some of the rules and regulations, I believe, of the Dodd-Frank law, which, by the way, was weak tea compared to the original Glass-Steagall I mean, Act. Barney Frank, who's the bill's named after, was on the board of one of the banks that just crashed. So you Sign know what? Was that, was that Signature Bank in New York? Signature Bank. It sure was. And I don't mean to belabor the point. It's actually all very much in step to what Bernie is talking about. Yeah, how these right. folks have just catered to big capital. You bet. You know, the 16th biggest bank in the country still technically wasn't considered to the point to be maybe looked at twice. That is the product of what Bernie is talking about in this book and why, yes, it is okay to be upset or to be furious at capitalism. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so he reviews all the reasons we have to be angry, and then he turns to the agenda to be pursued. 
Now, I have to say, the agenda that he lays out is a very curious one. I don't know how you felt about it. It had some good stuff in it. And it had some stuff that I thought, is he kidding? Let's actually, I want to indicate what he says. It says, get money out of politics. Well, goddamn, you bet. Undeniable. <laughs> I'm happy to rally around that. Guarantee voting rights. Hell, yeah. I mean, <laughs> hardly need to say it, but yeah. Make the Constitution relevant to the 21st century. And he says, abolish the Electoral College. Sounds like a damn good idea to me. Then he says, this one, by the way, is a, is a cute one. I have to say, this is the fantasy one. Rethink the United States Senate. It is equally yeah. hard to believe that in a democratic society, it is appropriate for Vermont, Wyoming, and Alaska to have equal representation in the Senate with California, a state that has 60 times more people than each of these small states. The only way you can do that, the only way you can do that is to break up California and that's up to Californians, and they're not going to want to do that necessarily, okay? That one, it just gets thrown in there, and I'm thinking, oh, come on, Bernie, at least suggest California break up or something. I mean, he doesn't even say that. Then he says, rethink the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, of course, lifetime membership on the court is outrageous, absolutely outrageous, so anti-democratic. Says, revitalize the American media, yes, for sure. End all forms of bigotry. Well, yeah, treat workers as human rights, workers' rights as human rights, sure, democratize the future of work, healthcare. Is it. In other words, some of the stuff is just right on a good social democratic vision. But some of the stuff was a bit, you know, it just, it, he didn't have to throw in some of the stuff. It tended to weaken the list of things that should be on the agenda. That's all I'm getting at. Well, let me push back a little because I have heard some folks saying that maybe this, this book that we got from Bernie, perhaps this is his swan song. You know, this is perhaps maybe setting up Bernie's passing of the torch i'm wondering you know you say that he kind of speaks a little bit in the clouds i'm wondering if he's realizing that this book is kind of a legacy marker you know there's gonna be folks who read this 10 20 30 years from now when maybe those goals aren't so in the clouds that's a sweet thought and in that case i want to go back to something that i promised you i would say late in the game today bernie misses the boat on history i mean for example he talks at the beginning about how well they did in, you know, in the campaign and then talks about how it got the kibosh. But what I don't get is why didn't he talk about the fact that what he is about is fundamentally American, not what these other Democrats are doing. What he's about goes back to the revolution, goes back to Thomas Paine's call for Social Security and grants to young people. It goes back to Abraham Lincoln and the kinds of initiatives that he pursued even during the Civil War regarding setting up land-grant universities, allowing family farms to move through the plain states. I mean, he doesn't touch onto history. And then there's another thing, and people should know that I believe what is historical in this, I'm willing to bet it's John Nichols who inserted, Bernie always seems to stray away from history. Listen to this paragraph of Bernie's. This is the reason to be angry. And then we'll go back into the history. After almost 50 years of wage stagnation, Democrats were in charge, but we did not raise wages for workers. After a massive amount of illegal corporate anti-union activity, we did not make it easier for workers to join unions. We did not improve job security. We did not address corporate greed or the massive levels of income and wealth inequality. We did not provide health care for all or lower the cost of prescription drugs. We did not make child care and higher education affordable. We did not address homelessness or the high cost of housing. We did not make it easier for working people to retire with security and dignity. We did not reform a corrupt campaign finance system. That is what... The book is about. But I wish Bernie had wrapped it in the American story. 
the story of the American Revolution and Thomas Paine's call for Social Security and for grants to young people to, to guarantee they won't fall into poverty. Should have included the likes of all of the social democrats who didn't think of themselves as social democrats the story of the radicals of the 19th century the abolitionists the slaves struggling to be free the lincoln presidency not just the emancipation proclamation but also the land grant act to create land grant universities the creation of the family farm movement throughout the midwest homestead act beyond that how about in the 20th century the progressives of the early 20th century he turns to fdr of course but even there they get the story wrong. I, I have to point this out in case anyone reads the book. They're missing the historical importance of FDR, and this is it. He says, in 1944, in a largely overlooked State of the Union address, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt spoke about the contradiction between our economic rights and our political rights. He basically recalls FDR's presentation or call for an economic bill of rights. But he's wrong. It was not an overlooked State of the Union address. In fact, the American Federation of Labor, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the Civil Rights Organizations, a national civic groups of a progressive sort, they all came out forcefully behind that call for an economic bill of rights. They campaigned on it. I mean, they produced pamphlets. They gathered in New York that summer, a million and a half people apparently gathered to hear a speech by the progressive liberal senator Robert F. Wagner of New York endorsing th that very idea of the economic bill of rights and calling for national health care. So it wasn't ignored. The point is that, as FDR said late in that speech, we must beware of rightist reaction. And he didn't mean the likes of the Klan and the Nazis. Well, you know, I mean, the Nazis were pretty much cornered at that point during World War II. But what he meant was that the big business guys, the capitalists, they were the right wing, he feared, was going to mobilize against the call for an economic bill of rights, which they did. And then later in the book, when they returned to it, the economic bill of rights, that's why, this is on page 164, in the 1944 State of the Union address that we referenced in the book's introduction, he made the case for establishing and recognizing economic rights. Unfortunately, because it was delivered in the midst of World War II, FDR's argument never got the attention it deserved, but it did. And the point is that what he misses, Bernie, is that even though we didn't succeed in creating an economic bill of rights in the formal legalistic fashion, Massive Americans mobilized in support of it. Polling that FDR's White House did showed that more than 80%, in some cases, more than 90% of Americans wanted the rights to health care, decent housing, to education. I mean, all of the things that we would include, as Alan and I have in an economic bill of rights, were there in a fundamental way in FDR's call. And it wasn't pulled out of his head. He had asked Americans in polls, what do you want after the war? And what pushed the corporate bosses to mobilize against the Economic Bill of Rights is that it was so popular. This is the thing that kills me. It killed me in 2015. It killed me in 2019. That is a 1516 campaign, 1920 campaign. Bernie is the greatest thing to happen to the left since Martin Luther King Jr., A. Philip Randolph, Walter Ruther, going back even in, into the 30s and 40s. But he doesn't grab hold of history. We're here to take back America. To take back America, we not only have to take control of the situation, we have to take hold of the past in order to create a progressive future and present. Bernie doesn't cultivate the confidence of Americans so that they would understand what we want is what Americans have always wanted. It goes back to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So it just frustrates the hell out of me. When we began our project two years ago, 
We wanted to make it clear. We were not celebrating the likes of slaveholders who signed the Declaration. We were not supporting those intellectuals who might have done good and bad at the same time. What we're supporting is the promise which was made and that every generation of progressives and radical intellectuals and activists grabbed hold of to fight to make life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness available to more and more Americans. And as the Bill of Rights says, the we the people, to expand not only the we and we the people, but the powers of the people. People should read Bernie's book, but I'll hope they'll pay attention to the fact that political arguments and the economic arguments are fabulous, but he could have been all the more powerful if he had linked it into the American radical story that we still feel and if we were more aware of it, we would feel all the more the obligation to make America better for ourselves and our children and our grandchildren. Now that I've vented a moment, I'm going to turn it over to you for the good stuff. All right. I've got some quotes because there are some really powerful progressive moments all throughout this thing. This topic, if I can, this is in chapter eight of the book, and we're talking about education. And one of the reasons why this is so front and center in my mind, especially here in Missouri, on the Kansas side, this is happening as well. I'm not sure what's going on in Wisconsin, but I'm sure it's pretty similar. This push, this renewed push on the voucher system using public dollars to basically just dismantle the public education system, even though in some of these rural communities, they don't even have alternatives. They don't even have private schools to go to. It has nothing to do with improving education and everything to destroying the public realm. And so this is what Bernie said. He says, progressives have to renew their understanding that education policy is, is central to progress for society. Historically, Progressives were at the forefront of education debates, battling to establish free public education, to open schools to all students, to build great schools in urban and rural areas, and to fully fund them. There was a forward motion to our activism. Over the past several decades, however, right-wingers have warped the debates to such an extent that most of our fights these days seem to be defensive ones. We've been forced to push back against privatization schemes, against anti-teacher sentiment in general, and specifically against the efforts by Republican governors such as Wisconsin's Scott Walker to disempower teachers' unions, against cuts in funding for rural schools, against those who see diversity as a problem rather than a strength, against efforts to dumb down curriculums, against campaigns to take over school boards by right-wing zealots. It's overwhelming, and it gets us off course. When we are always fighting against those who would take us backwards, it's hard to find time to make the arguments for what needs to be done to go forward. It's such a great point. How many times does it feel like, and insert the topic from universal health care to now having to fight these anti-trans bills, we've got to be the ones that defends the American promise of it all. Look, the first part of the book is Bernie's lament at the way that they treated him. This part of the book, the fundamental line in there is we're always on the defensive because the Democrats from the 70s on turned their backs on working people. They were the party of working people and they turned their backs on working people. And corporations went after pension plans. They lowered wages. They broke unions. And the Republicans were in the vanguard of enabling them to do it. And the Democrats didn't fight. They didn't mobilize with labor against it. 
I mean, that's that's the problem. Bernie's book is a reminder that, yeah, we're losing right now, okay, when we shouldn't be. The majority of Americans are progressive, but they should also be reminded that the majority of Americans are still feeling the promise of America, but they're not being led by Democrats who will mobilize that sentiment in an aggressive way. Instead of just calling for people's votes, ask them to turn up and turn out to protest. Don't run away from your fellow citizens. We're going to go out with this, Professor Kay, and I think that's a great way to actually to put some context in this quote. There is no middle ground between the insatiable greed of uber-capitalism and a fair deal for the working class. There is not a middle ground as to whether or not we save the planet. There is not a middle ground about whether or not we preserve our democracy and remain a society based on equal protection of all. There's no middle ground, Harvey K. Exactly. Exactly. Professor Harvey K., my brother. Oh, this was so good. I miss you too much not to see you every week. We got to make sure we don't have too many days off. And we should be careful what we choose to do in upcoming weeks. We should think about how to get webbed up like we just were. Professor Harvey K., I am fired up and ready to go. Why don't you let these folks know where they can find you on the internet? They want to keep the conversation going, Harvey K. Where can they find you? Harvey J.K., H-A-R-V-E-Y, initial J-K-A-Y-E, on Twitter. You can get me at Hartzell965. You can get the show, The KC Morning Show, at KC Morning Show on Twitter, The KC Morning Show on Instagram. Professor K, next week, we take back America, yeah? You and me? We doing this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's not decide this minute. We'll talk in the next several days and we'll decide how we're going to do it. Y'all can't see Professor K. That means it's time to scheme. We'll chat next week. Thank you. Love you, Hartzell. Love you, brother. Everybody knows the dice are loaded. Everybody rolls with the fingers crossed. Everybody knows that the war is over. Everybody knows that the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight is fixed. The poor stay poor and the rich get rich. That's how it goes. Everybody knows the boat is sinking. Everybody knows that the captain lied Everybody's got this broken feeling Like the mama or the dog just died Everybody's hands are in their pockets Everybody wants a box of chocolates and a long stem rose Everybody knows Everybody knows That's how it goes Everybody knows Everybody knows
never Everybody knows that it's me or you Everybody knows that you're there forever When you had a line or two Everybody knows the deal is rotten Old Black Joe's still picking cotton For your ribbons and bows Everybody knows you love me, baby Everybody knows that you really do Everybody knows that you've been faithful Can it take a night or two? Everybody knows you've been discreet So many people you had to meet Without your clothes And everybody knows Everybody knows Everybody knows That's the way it goes Everybody knows Show. Show.